Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Aparuta de sangamatasa tawaraye sorabanta ban munjantu satang. So this afternoon, I take this opportunity, the half moon day, which we celebrate in this tradition, and the uh, learning to trust in awareness is a common question, what, how do you do that, what do you mean by that, because, you know, you understand the words and the meaning, but the reality <clears throat> And one gets confused trying to find out exactly how to trust and what is awareness. And uh, the whole thinking process takes over the mind. So we, you know, am I really trusting my awareness or am I not or is this the path? Or is it, it isn't the path or, you know, so this is doubt. And so doubt always creates, the, you know, it's one of the uh, defilements that we need to learn from. Doubting is, is what we tend to do with the thinking process. And the, uh, practicing all these years, practicing trusting awareness, You know, when you re realize uh, what you can trust through investigation, through mindful awareness of the way it is. So you can't trust some idea, you know, of some idea you have about awareness or yourself as a person, whether you, you're really aware all the time or how, how should you stay aware 24 hours a day are you aware when you're sleeping? What happens to consciousness when you're fast asleep? Does it disappear? And uh, all these doubts, you know, about consciousness, about yourself as a person, about being a meditator, this is all created with the thinking process. So in the third fetter of the Sangyojanas, the th fetter that blocks the, the insight into a path that you can trust is, is doubt. And, you know, in Zen Buddhism, they use doubt as a, as a deliberate way of experiencing the reality of now. So, you know, these Zen techniques of koans where they, they the master gives the disciple some totally incomprehensible, something to prove, you know, something to, what is the, your original face before you were born? And you try to think about that. You know, you, before I was born, I didn't have a face, or was my original face? Uh, and you just get caught up in doubt. You try to figure it out intellectually, these conundrums, these koans, you know, you always end up with doubt. And so doubt is when you stop thinking. You know, it's actually uh, not a real defilement. It's an insight. But as long as you're thinking about yourself as a separate person, and that separate person that you identified with your body, with what you think, what you remember, your, your emotional habits. You know, you, we create this sense of separateness 
by the identifying with the physical form that, that we've always been told since we were born is what I am. So we can't help that because uh, the cultural conditioning is very much based on the belief, total belief, not on trust, not on insight. What we're told is that we are this human form, we're a boy or a girl, or, you know, so we identify with, with these different conditions that we get, you know, when we're still innocent, we're not reflecting on it, we just grasp what we're given by our parents, by our peers, by our society, without question. So the doubt then is, you know, I really appreciated this Zen technique because my, one of my first interests in Buddhism originated from reading Zen, books on Zen. Zen Buddhism is, uh, began to, there began in the Bay Area of California, there was tremendous interest in the 1950s in Zen Buddhism. Because it is a challenge to <clears throat> the conditioning that we all experience, whether you're Japanese or British or Thai or whatever you identify with, you know, the cultural conditioning is pretty much, you are a separate person, you are a member of society, they're given all the answers to life, how you should behave, what a good boy would, should be like, what a good girl should be like, and, and so we get fed a whole conditioning that's based on good and bad, right and wrong, on beliefs, that have never, in many cases, never been questioned or examined. And so this opportunity we have here is to examine, to, to investigate the conditioning that we've received, not to get rid of it, not to put it down or blame parents or societies for conditioning us to believe in these things because the, Society depends on this kind of faith in, in the, in the so social uh, qualities that are given to us. So, you know, some are good about being moral and kind and generous and, and uh, obeying the rules and not upsetting people, behaving yourself, not making a scene. Don't get caught up in your emotions. Learn to be cool and, and so forth. They're all kind of uh, beliefs that, you know, that society adheres to. So we have etiquette, rules of etiquette, proper behavior, proper way of relating to each other in the society from junior to seniors or in, in the American system, it was about equality. Everybody's equal. <clears throat> and uh, so, you, you know, these are conditioned patterns given to you when you were an, an innocent child. Innocence is like that. It's pure, you know, so it's conscious, fully conscious, pure consciousness, and it's open with, without reflection. So it, wisdom is not operative at that age. There's a natural, instinctual kind of wisdom for survival. But the wisdom of the Buddha is through this investigation of the way things are. So the word trust itself, you know, in tra translating Pali words into English mean meanings is uh, you know, quite a challenge because Buddhism is a, is a religion that originated in India. They use Pali and Sanskrit. And then modern English changes all the time in its meanings and assumptions. 
But it's a challenge, you know, when you're trying to teach in other languages. Many of you who try to teach in other European languages find it a challenge too, because you've learned Buddhism through English. So it's a, you know, an interesting subject to, to begin to observe language, not to criticize it, saying Pali is more accurate, much better, you can't really understand Buddhism unless you learn Pali and Sanskrit or Tibetan or Chinese. You know, people do have views like this that somehow these languages hold the real essence of the Buddha Dhamma in the words. And the Pali words are, you know, it's a, an ancient language. It's no longer really a living language spoken by a population. But it's, you know, it's to be respected. But in this situation, we find ourselves with English language. So when we talk about trust, what is, what is that, you know, say as contrasted to belief? So when I use the word belief, that doesn't imply trust, that just means you accept what you've been told. You've been told what's right, what's wrong, what you should be, what you shouldn't be, and you believe that. So social conditioning, cultural conditioning is all about believing in Buddha Dhamma, in Christian doctrine, in Islamic law, and, and you know, so you, you know, you believe in these, what you're told without investigation. So belief is one aspect of the conditioning process where the teacher says to believe in Buddhism. But then in meditation, in bhavana, it's learning to trust. And so in this trust, what can you can trust at this moment that every one of us is capable of trusting is that we know we're aware, we're conscious. And so that's so obvious, you know, it's a fact and recognizable. So it's not some kind of mystical teaching that you believe in because you know, everyone here knows they're aware, they're, they're conscious at this moment. You hear what I'm saying. How does it affect you on a feeling level, emotional? Does, you know, so this is, then you begin to trust your awareness rather than just the words that I'm saying, though your own interpretation of what I'm saying, to begin to really trust in awareness, in mindfulness. So it's, and this is like going against the stream, really, because uh, what we're used to is belief. Tell me what to believe. You know, teachers, Ajahn said, please Ajahn, tell me what to believe, how to behave. And so, you know, teachers, politicians, all kinds of authority figures tell you what to believe or what not to believe. But this is a time with interesting worldwide with the mass media, there's a lot of fake news. And so, you know, what can you, can you believe it or not believe it? Uh, can you trust politicians? Can you trust teachers? Can you trust priests, monks, nuns? Can you trust them because of their position? You know, so these are questions and, and they create doubt. And then we're aware that we don't know what to believe. 
not sure what it's all about. What's the meaning of life anyway? What's the purpose of monastic life? What's, are we just wasting our time or does it have a meaning? Tell me the meaning, Ajahn Sumedho, and and then, you know, I might give you some wise definition of the purpose of monastic, some inspiring concepts you might believe. But they're still only words, whether they're inspiring or depressing. Words have that effect on us. Only we're very emotionally conditioned. So praise and blame, you know, affect us very profoundly. So if, you know, if I say you, you're not a good meditator or you've got it all wrong, you don't understand anything, will you believe me? Or if I tell you you're a stream enter or an arhat, will you believe me? You know, then, you, you know, then you, some people will believe me or doubt me. But what you can actually know is you don't know. I don't know what I am, but there's a knowing of not knowing. The awareness of the feeling of, am, what, you know, if I'm not the body, I'm not the name, the, the position, the conventional form, the, my feelings, my memories, and my hopes, expectations, my emotional habits, I'm not any of that. You know, it's all anatta, no self. What am I? And there's a doubt, isn't it? What am I? Who am I? Is, is, is a question that creates this doubt. And this doubt is what you can know that you don't know. And is learning to trust this kind of knowing, this awareness of the way things are, rather than trying to find whether I'm speaking the truth or it's fake news or right or wrong or what it actually, the Buddha taught like this or did, you know, did he really teach this kind of thing or, uh, you know, so then there's different forms of discussions, Buddhist discussions on what the Buddha really taught, the true words of the Buddha, the real words of the Buddha, the Buddha Vajana. The words of the Buddha straight from the suttas are what you have to believe if you want to be a Buddhist. You have to keep the five precepts at least to be a Buddhist. You have to believe in reincarnation. And you have to believe in anatta, no self. If you're a Buddhist, you believe in all these words. But is that what the Buddha really wanted us to do? You know, is his teaching aimed at a, at a belief system, at doctrinal positions that you take on life, on yourself and the world? You know, so then, you know, when you practice bhati-bhata, this investigation for noble truths, it, it's a different thing than just believing that the suffering is the is, uh, is a noble truth. That's not a very comfortable belief. And, you know, inspiring more like every, God loves us. Everything is love and, and kindness and our purpose of our life is to find this universal unconditional love and live our lives happily forever after. A, might inspire us. Those are inspiring concepts. All about love is very inspiring. Con unconditional love, metta, karuna, mudita, upeka can inspire. And what is aware of when you feel inspired? Who is that? That's aware when you somebody some monk or nun gives you a really inspiring Dhamma talk. You know, you feel you're like this. Inspiration is, is one thing that 
language can create. So, so, so many religions depend on inspiring people uh, for hope and expectation, either in this life or the next life. But what is, this life is, is like this right now, this life is like this at this moment. Whatever you, however you experience this moment, whatever feeling you might be having in regards to what I'm saying, what you're hearing, because you're listening to this voice, this monk speaking on this microphone, and it's like this. And as you pause, rather than try to figure out what it's like, because it's not like anything, it's going to be different for each of us in terms of how we react or respond to to this kind of talk. You know, it's not everybody's going to have the same inspiration or doubt or belief or suspicion or critical view or just grasping the words that I say because I'm a senior monk. But you know at any time, you know, whatever your, your emotional reaction, your response, to this moment is like this. So it's an open attention. You know, it's not focused on anything. It's not about an analyzing or criticizing, making judgments about it, but it's like this. So it, just to find this, this way of using these words, it's like this, opens you up in a wide kind of embracing moment. It's like this. And you kind of stop and just rest in it. You don't have to figure out what it's like. Because then you have to start thinking, you know, about what you're really feeling uh, and whether it's right or wrong or whether you're trusted or confused by it. It's, like, it's still whether you're confused or you understand or you have insight, it's like this. This you can trust. Your emotional reactions you can't trust because they depended on so many other conditions. Like today, this afternoon, coming over here, everything's blossoming, the roses are blooming, the wisteria is in blossom in the cloister, the trees are beautiful, the sun is shining, England is in its glorious spring dress as beautiful as like this. So you know when, when you feel inspired or happy about the sun shining in the springtime in England is like this, without thinking about it, without judging it, comparing it to Thailand or Italy or any other place. So in Pali, they have a word, datata, which means it's like this. It's, it's nameless. It doesn't describe anything. In English, we have to use these words. It's like this, or the way it is. It's like this is more open, I think. The way it is tends to kind of sound, that's the way it is, kind of resigned to if you're depressed or doubtful or unhappy, it's like this, you know, then it's kind of resignation to, to a miserable state. But it's like this, it doesn't about resignation in some negative uh, doubting, attachment to doubt or negativity. It's, it's just an open receptivity in the present moment. So 
Now, I remember years ago, I became very interested in Swinburne's poetry. And, and uh, some people that are consider themselves poets look down on Swinburne because he's very wordy. But uh, I was criticized once for, for admiring Swinburne. But so much of Swinburne's poetry is just reflection on the way it is. And kind of beautiful, it's kind of musical poetry. It's Victorian time where English poetry was more musically rhyming and, 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 and that kind of what we, we consider poetry of that age. So one, one line, the first line of one is Swinburne's poetry is, the, split, the, the silence of noon and the splendor of silence felt, seen and heard of the spirit within the sense. So that's a reflection, you know, it's not a judgment. Silence and splendor, like the splendor of the afternoon here at Amravati is like this. But some afternoons is not splendid. It is wet and cold. It's like this. Felt, seen, and heard of the spirit within the sense. We feel, you know, we're feeling these forms are sensitive forms. So they're going to feel heat and cold and see beautiful sunny springtimes or cold rainy winters or, you know, wherever you are, there's positive and negative aspects to the weather. I think of Thailand with its, you know, as a tropical country where it's warm all the time. When you're in the cold winter in England, Thailand can look more promising because nice and warm country. But when you're living in Thailand, it changes, the seasons are changing. So you get used to hot weather and you're glad when, it, when there's some cool weather. And then you think of English springtime and when it's the hot season in Thailand. And your mind goes, compares it, you know, the, the weather in Thailand with the weather in England. This is all thought, isn't it? It changes according to where you are, what you're feeling like, time of day or night, the kind of character, personality you, you ha have as an individual. Like personality itself. <clears throat> we say somebody has a good personality or they don't have any personality. You know, we, we might, these are value judgments. What is personality? You know, are you the same person? Do you think the same thoughts 24-7? You know, when, you're a, when you have a good personality, is it good all the time? Or does it change according to other conditions? You know, so in the way it is, is this, this uh, observing, recognizing the way things, the changingness of phenomena, it's like this. It's not to judge it as right or wrong, good or bad, but change is like this. And so, you know, and noticing that, that these words kind of open you in a wide, kind of embracing the moment rather than defining it. Rather than trying to figure out what you are or who you are, you embrace, it's like this. Whether you're in a good mood or a bad mood, whether everything's going well or everything is falling apart, it's like this. 
is always uh, something you can trust because it's not about comparing happy days with unhappy days or positive with negative. It's not about trying to just be positive about everything and try to convince yourself you're happy all the time. It's not about kind of informing yourself endlessly in positive thoughts, memories, and then feeling guilty when you feel angry or upset or jealous or frightened. So when you're trying to be a positive person, uh, as a person, you know, some people are better, better at it than others. But many people live in a world of, of, of critical obsessions like depressive states of mind, unhappiness, doubt, worry, anxiety. And you know, the modern society here in, in the UK, people complain about stress and uh, you know, being tension. And yet, life has never been more comfortable, I think, in any time, any recorded historical time. You know, physically. You know, you've got stable government and, and uh, you know, there's so many positive things, you know, in terms of convenience, comfort, life-saving machines, life-saving uh, mechanisms, way to uh, medical science that prolongs your lifespan and, and uh, all kinds of luxuries available to average people. You know, I used to watch these, these movies made in Hollywood about the time of Rome and the Roman Empire and then only very wealthy people had chariots with horses. Now everybody's got a chariot. Amaravati has chariots. <laughs> Automobiles now are you know, available to, to the, anyone who wants to, has the money to purchase them. So it's so convenient with the high technology, communication worldwide. I can phone Thailand today, right now, on an iPhone. Talk to Tanajan Liam, just to dialing, pressing on the right numbers on a phone sitting here in the temple. So it's kind of magic, you know, modern technology is like magic. But people come endlessly complain about stress and anxiety and worry. I remember growing up in a household where my parents worried constantly about the future. So, you know, these, this says, and yet we had a, quite a comfortable life. But this uh, worry is about thinking, about the unknown about the future. And if you're a very positive and negative person, then the future is all about climate change and, and overpopulation and pandemics. There's so many ominous suggestions about the future, whether planet Earth will be inhabitable in 2050. You know, so this is something to worry about right now. But what you can be aware is worry is like this. To be worried about the future. It's not that I'm saying don't worry about the future, but if that's what you're doing, you can be aware it is what it is. It's not that get rid of it or to criticize you for worrying or being stressed. But it's about opening to life in the present, where you're actually conscious. You're not conscious in the future. The future is unknown at this moment. It could be anything. It could be the best or the worst or whatever. 
So in informing yourself, learning to trust awareness is not asking too much of you. It's not a kind of difficult thing to do or some kind of achievement that, that only advanced meditators can do. These are words or assumptions that we make. You know about, you know, Ajahn Sumato's been a monk all these years and uh, so he can talk like that, but you know, for me, I'm just a newly ordained monk. And uh, this is all thought, isn't it? Ajahn Sumato, he's senior monk, I'm junior monk. These are all concepts that we can be aware of. It's not that they're wrong or that you shouldn't think, but you're aware of thinking, aware of feeling, and that not in a, in a critical way. So like, just Amravati is like this. And so this is a way of, you know, opening wide to Amravati. Whatever you're feeling about it at this time is not, you're not expected to, I'm telling you how you should feel or how wonderful Amravati is. Then I'd, you'd have to, I'm trying to convince you to believe me that Amravati is a very nice monastery. And, uh, you know, the teaching is good, and Vinaya is good, and beautiful scenery, very nice part of England. It, you should be grateful and happy here, because it's, it's a very ideal monastery. That's, that might inspire you. Some will just doubt it. And I'm trying to convince you that you should believe what I'm saying. <laughs> And you can be aware of the life as you experience it. And not the thing that I shouldn't try to inspire. Or that there's nothing wrong with Amravati, it's perfect. Because that's another concept. But it is awareness that is the path to the deathless. So the path of the deathless isn't dependent upon Amravati or upon wise teachings from senior monks or nuns. It's not dependent upon, you know, this particular tradition. Liberation is always about the way it is. Sangsara, the changing conditions, phenomena, the re relentless, inexorable changingness that we experience through the forms, through these bodies, through what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and think and feel, and experiences change, and some are pleasant, some are unpleasant. So that's, you know, in terms of wanting stability and permanent security, in changing conditions is absurd, isn't it? It's impossible. It's impossible to, to put your trust in something that's endlessly changing. You know, even at its peak moments, the honeymoon period, the great romance, the great achievement, the accolades, the the titles you might receive, the good health you might experience, you know, is not to be denied, but it is going to change because that's the nature of phenomena, of sankhara, of conditions. So trusting in awareness is just an invitation or encouragement to trust in, in the reality that is available here and now. You know, that's, that's trust, that's not just belief in what I'm saying or in believing and trusting in awareness. Those are words too. Because awareness can be anything. It can be full of doubt and fear, 
So, it, you know, in terms of what you're aware of has qualities and conditions that might be very unpleasant. But it's like this anyway, whether it's painful or pleasant, healthy or thick, sun shining, warm weather, cold winters, everybody's living in harmony, or every, the monastery is falling apart. You know, so then, you know, these are conditions dependent on other conditions. So condition phenomena is very undependable, unstable. So when we look for security in wealth and in position and in good health and in relationships, you know, we're putting our faith in something that isn't, can't sustain itself on that level of being pleasant and beautiful and right. It's impossible. So this sense of ease, you know, the opening to the present moment is, is relaxation. It's not about trying to figure out what the present moment is like. You know, then that takes tension, trying to find the right words to express how you're feeling at this moment. You have to, you, you've lost it already. You're lost in the samsara, the, the endless thinking process, trying to analyze and figure out how you're actually feeling at this moment. So it's, uh, you know, this, when you visit another monastery or you go to live in Chithurst or go to live in Thailand, it's like this. And I say, I'm not saying that it's better or worse than Amravati. You know, we might have these kind of thoughts. Is Chithurst better than Amravati might arise? But that's a thought. Chithurst is like this. And when you're there, it's like this whatever mood or state of mind or reaction you might have to physically being in a different monastery is like this. When you go to Thailand, it's like this. Hot weather and hot season in Thailand is like this. And so it's, it's not saying that, you, you know, it should be otherwise, but it is opening to life itself, to the reality of conscious awareness here and now, is what you really are. If you're looking for an identity, you won't find it through words, through concepts. No matter how positive or negative or inspiring or depressing your words might be, be when they arise. But what you can know, wherever you are, whatever state you're in, whatever time of day, is like this. And I found this like just a sense of relaxation, of letting go. Because it doesn't demand anything. It isn't asking me to open up and be open to life as a person. It's just a suggestion of relaxing and embracing the present moment is like this, however pleasant or unpleasant it might be for you at this time. So when Rungkha Cha told me that meditation, was years ago when I was learning Thai, I was asked Lungpa Cha to define meditation for me. Then he said, Pakpon Tang Jitai, which translated as uh, holiday of the heart. So a holiday of the heart, you know, a holiday, the idea of a holiday is 
relaxing. You know, you don't have to work. You don't have to pay attention to anything particular. You're not ca caught up in anything like when your family life or office or business or uh, social relationships. You're just on holiday. Pakpon Thang holiday of the heart. And I thought that was quite insightful for me because I thought meditation was hard work. You know, how many of you, you hear all the time people saying how hard meditation is, how difficult mindfulness is about, you know, you have, they spend, you know, they, they go home and meditate and their minds wander all over the place and they, they only have maybe two minutes of peace and the rest of the time is just willpower, tense, striving, concentration, trying to stop the thinking mind, trying to get silent, trying to get a peaceful mind. You know, this is stress, isn't it? Meditation on that level is stressful. When you see it as something you've got to get, something you, you've got to control your mind, you've got to control your posture, it's all about control, and that takes effort. Control takes effort. Where relaxation of the heart, and the heart is, you know, it's not about the physical organ. It's this sense of just being in the moment, here and now, it's like this. Nothing to do, nowhere to go, not having to prove anything, be anybody. And then the mind starts, when you have duties to perform, you've got meetings to attend, you, you have to be responsible, and all the, the tyrants of conscious thinking come into, into our mind, you know, about our position, our responsibilities, our duties, And that, that creates tension, because those are very intimidating thoughts. So, I mean, having duty, feeling you've got duties, you have to think of their duties, perform your duties, and be responsible. You know, when I talk like this, this is about, it's very intimidating. It makes you feel tense, you know, you know really, Got to get your act together and and uh, learn not to complain and just get on with life, you know, and practice so many hours a day and and spread metta as often as you can and and uh, and all these are kind of can be duties that we assume, good ideas that we try to live up to, ideals that we imagine. But at this moment, it's like this. Even being intimidated by these tyrannical thoughts and emotional habits is like this. So you're not trying to get rid of them or not have any, but just learn to trust the awareness of them is like this. Because they all, their nature is to arise and cease in consciousness. You know, they're impermanent, they're not self. And it's this, you know, this sense of, as you become senior in the Sangha, you know, you, you're expected to have duties, responsibilities, and be, becoming Jawawat, or abbot of a monastery, or senior monk or nun, and, and all the kind of intimidating reactions we have to these positions. So I remember in just trying to establish what banana chat, you know, in Thailand where, you know, suddenly I was a head monk, eight pansas only, eight years, taking position of, you know, of a senior monk, And then I thought, I've got all these duties, I'm a teacher now, I, 
I can't even call myself Anjan Samaita because I don't have 10 pansas. And, uh, you know, in the, and when the pansa began, I went to Lung Pao Chan. I said, I can't give, give dependence because the Vinaya says you have to have 10 years to give dependence to other monks. All doubts about whether I should, whether I can give dependence. Uh, uh, you know, and I ate pansas. I'm not a Anjan. And yet I'm expected to have all these duties of a Anjan and operate as a senior monk without any previous experience of such duties or obligations. So, you know, then the feeling is very confusing. But I did have the wisdom at the time to observe that. Even, you know, as I was very junior at that time, still there was enough insight to trust the awareness of it. So relaxation of the heart, the way it is, these are concepts to, to uh, kind of reflect upon when you're caught up in, in your their hab emotional habits and the critical mind starts accusing you of being irresponsible or not good enough or you're not a good meditator or you can't do it. You don't understand what Ajahn Sumedho is saying. You know, there's still awareness of it, isn't it? Feeling, it is the feeling I can't meditate is like this. If you believe me that you can meditate, that's, that's one step forward at least, but it's still not it. It's learning to trust. So these two words, belief. In the beginning, we believe. <clears throat> we believe the Buddha. We believe in the Four Noble Truths. We believe in the Three Refuges, the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. We believe in rebirth and reincarnation. We believe in the Devada realms and the Brahma realms and the lower realms. We believe in, according to the scriptures, you know, so that's information on the Bariati level, <clears throat> you know, so we, we accept that. We start with belief. And that creates a certain amount of trust and interest in, the, in practice, in Bhattibhata. But just believing in Buddhism and in all those Buddhist teachings it's kind of missing the point. You know, it's, it's skillful, it's a good karma, but it's not liberating till you trust in awareness. And from my experience, you know, that's the whole magne magnificence of the Dhamma teaching of the Buddha, is that it, he, he opened this whole realm of trust in me that I didn't know about before I started meditating. Even with the tension, you know, I started meditating with a lot of tension. I wanted samadhi, to, it was so samadhi-oriented in Thailand. Everything's about samadhi and so you know, trying to get samadhi, get jhanas, get these absorptions, they're so desirable. And so, you know, and that took a lot of tension, a lot of effort, and control. I had to control the environment. I found anything that, that got in my way, annoyance, and irritated me, and caused me to doubt. So they had working projects. Remember, 
and we had to build a road up to the top of Tumsangpat. Tumsangpat is a, a kind of high hill in Ubon. In, now it's called uh, Samnachil in different province, but in those days it was part of Ubon. Tumsangpat was a beautiful branch monastery, a high hill on the Isan Plain, and uh, Ajahn Chah wanted to build a sala on top of this hill. So he expected us all to go to Tumsangpet and build this road. And Lumpo Chah was brilliant at observing land development and how he, they brought architects and experts from Bangkok to design a possible way to build a road to the, from the base of the mountain up to the top of it. And they were also expensive and cost a lot of money and destruction of the environment. And the Lung Cha just got rid of the architects and the engineers and figured it out himself. He'd go out every morning. He'd stay at, uh, with us in the sala at Tham Sang Pet, and then in the villagers, some village men, they'd go out and they'd scout the area. They found a possible way to, to build a road to the top of Tham Sang Pet Hill. So then, and this was during the hot season, we had to, the monks of Wat Mapong respected to go and labor in the hot sun. And Tham Sang Pet is all rocks. You know, it's a rocky hill with caves and grottoes. And so you're out in the hot sun and we can't dig in the soil. So the, the Samaneras and the Anagarikas and the laymen would dig the, clear the land and, and uh, do the digging in the soil. But we had to carry rocks or break up boulders. I was, had a sledgehammer and I was out in the hot sun sweating, breaking up rocks like a slave laborer in a prison scene in a Hollywood movie. And I kept thinking, you know, I didn't come ordained to do this. This is, this is slave labor. So this, this mind that kept complaining. You know, I have a master's degree. And here I am breaking rocks in Northeast Thailand, like, a, like on a chain gang almost. We had to work till, you know, till it was dusk. We had to bindabat, get up early, have morning puja, go on the alms round to the villages which were right far away, have a meal, and then go right to work. So, and work till dusk. And we slept out on the, on the rocks of this hill, this mountain. And then I'm, you know, Lung Po Cha was like a living example to us because he was there all the time, working with the rest of us. So, as much as my mind complained and compared, you know, I didn't come to ordain to, to be a slave laborer and all these kind of negative thoughts arose, I began to let go of them. I began to see that actually it was quite a lot of fun. Now I look back at that time, it took several months, and, and that was one of the happy memories I have of living in Thailand as a junior monk. Because this was the awareness that Lung Po Chao was always encouraging. Works, whether you're breaking rocks with a sledgehammer or, or building a road or sitting in your kuti in meditation. You know, it's about here and now. It's not about ideal conditions supporting enlightenment that you can only become enlightened when the conditions are ideal, because they're never ideal. Even ideal conditions change. So what Lumpur Chao was pointing at was, 
was real, you know, direct kind of teaching. And, and he, he was, a, uh, you know, a living example of that because he was, the, you know, one who trusted in his awareness of the way things are. So I offer this as a reflection.